Welcome to Lesson 9, Simplicity Smart Contracts. We join Russell O'Connor for a lecture at Stanford University via the Cyber Initiative YouTube channel. Learn how Bitcoin will securely support complex smart contracts where other blockchains have failed. If you prefer the video format of these lectures, check out the link on the show notes page or head to 10hoursofbitcoin.com. You can find our Twitter handles there if you want to hit us up with any questions or suggestions, and we'd love for you to donate to the project. Finally, remember to share and subscribe to the podcast to help us reach as many people as possible. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so I've been working on a, a new language for the uh, sort of consensus layer of, of blockchains. Uh, and I'm here to present that to you today. Um, I, I'm, I know everyone is familiar with this in, in the audience, but I, I just sort of want to make sure that everyone, I'm on the same page with, with you guys. Right, so how do blockchains and smart contracts and, and programming languages work together? Uh, so very, very briefly, right, a blockchain is a distributed ledger where all the participants um, uh, share that ledger through a network. Um, and then we append transactions to this ledger uh, to transfer funds between participants. Uh, but rather than, to, rather than just sending funds to uh, uh, public keys, which are controlled by, by users, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto had this, this brilliant idea of actually sending them to little programs. Um, and then, because we have a little programming language, the simplest, which is, is a program that says, here's a public key, uh, and, and to, to authorize transfers out of this, 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 uh, uh, out of this uh, things, it requires a signature that corresponds to this public key. Uh, we can have, have little programs, and then we can do more sophisticated things where we can have two of two or two of three signatures. Uh, and then uh, with even more complicated programs, uh, we can get escrow and covenants and digital swaps that are atomic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so, so adding a little programming language to your blockchain uh, really uh, has, uh, has, a big, has vast consequences on, on, on the types of, of things and the usefulness of your blockchain. All right, so we need to design a language for, um, to, to use to, to, to authorize these, what, what sort of authorization, to provide some sort of uh, uh, scheme for designing different authorizations uh, schemes for, for these transactions. Uh, and we have a lot of programming languages out there already in the world, so you know we could just use JavaScript, maybe, right? So Ethereum's primary contracts, smart contract language is Solidity, is syntactically similar to JavaScript. Um, Solidity is compiled to a machine code for an abstract machine called EVM, right? So what could go wrong, right? And I don't really want to belabor the point of what could go wrong, right? But lots of things can go wrong, um, uh, and. And, uh, and I think that the problems that, that we've seen in Ethereum can be attributed to, to sort of uh, the design of the EVM, right? It's difficult to assign costs to the various primitives uh, that are in, used in the EVM, and this has caused denial of service attacks against Ethereum, uh, where you can create transactions that just consume too many resources, whether it's CPU or IO resources and stuff like that, uh, and, 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 and bring the, sort of grind the network to a halt that way. Um, it's difficult to bound the costs of programs, right? So you, you, you have created sort of a smart contract, right? Uh, but uh, any smart contracting language 
uh, used on a blockchain has to limit the amount of resources because you're not going to allow unbounded computation to, to occur in the network. That would, that would be a denial of service attack in itself. So there have to be some sort of limits imposed on, on these transactions. But you know, when you have a sort of a, uh, a, a Turing incomplete, a Turing complete language, or, or, or any any sophisticated language, right? Uh, it's in, it's by basically by Rice's theorem, it's impossible to come up with upper bounds on the cost of, of executing the program in in all possible inputs, um, and uh, and uh, and the alternative is that that uh, that's not to say that you can't reason about it, but there's no universal algorithm to to reason about these these cost bounds. Uh, so you have something like gas, which prevents programs running from, from running forever. But then you enter in these contracts where uh, it turns out that you don't actually have sufficient gas to actually complete them. And so there are a lot of transactions that get stuck in Ethereum just because uh, it's impossible to provide them with enough gas to, to achieve their, their computation. Uh, and then sort of related to that is that the sort of complex, complex and informal language semantics makes reasoning about uh, uh, EVM programs very difficult, and uh, so uh, so so the, right. So there's an argument to be made, you know, that it's really the participants' responsibility to make sure that their programs are correct, and and there's certain certain truth to that, right? Um, but I think a lot of the problems can be avoided by by taking a look at the language design. All right, so what about Bitcoin, right? This was the, the first uh, programmable blockchain, and uh, in addition to being the first blockchain. Um, and the problem is that Bitcoin's programming language is sort of inexpressive, right? Uh, there was a big purge done by Satoshi in, in 2010 because uh, uh, we speculate it was because that, that there were some denial of service attacks in, in some of the operations in, in, in early Bitcoin. So there was just sort of a vast purging of, of operations to, 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 to ensure that, that there wouldn't be a problem going forward. And so even, even poor multiplication got, got axed right there. So you can add numbers, but you can't multiply them uh, in Bitcoin. So we have a language design problem here. Um, and so I like this quote from attributed to Tony Hoare that there are two methods to software design. One is to make the program so simple there are obviously no errors, and the other is to make it so complicated that there are no obvious errors, right? So we want to aim for the former rather than the latter here. So what we need is simplicity, right? We need to create uh, sort of a solid foundation for building smart contracts uh, on that, that's simple. So what is simplicity? Uh, Simplicity is a low-level language that I've designed for specifying user-defined uh, user programs uh, that's to be evaluated within an adversarial environment, right? So most of the time when you're writing languages and, and doing programming, you're not in an adversarial situation. You're cooperating with the computer in order to, to, to build a program to accomplish some task, right? But our, our public blockchains are, are a different scenario, right? Uh, you're receiving programs from other people and you're executing them uh, and those people might be uh, uh, trying to create malicious programs to do denial service attacks and, and, and other things. All right, so what's uh, some of the features uh, that simply is designed, and we'll, we'll take a look at the language in a moment, right? But it's a typed combinator language. Uh, we, 
It's uh, designed to be finitarily complete instead of Turing complete. Uh, and that means that uh, there's, for any particular program, there's only a finite number of possible inputs that the, the program will uh, accept uh, and a finite number of possible outputs. Um, and this makes it necessarily Turing uh, incomplete. Uh, simplicity comes with simple formal denotational semantics that we'll, uh, we specify in the Koch theorem prover. Uh, it has formal operational semantics, so we can uh, talk about how much uh, time and space uh, simplicity programs uh, take. Uh, and then uh, one of the, the key advantages is, is easy static analysis of the computational costs of, of, uh, that's implied by these operational semantics. And we'll look at these, these features. All right, so this, the type system for simplicity is very simple. We only have uh, three, three basic forms of types. Uh, and, and anyone familiar with functional programming will, will, will find this very natural. And if you're not familiar with functional programming, you might be a little confused. Um, so the, the basic type, the first basic type is the unit type. Um, this is the type with exactly one value in it. Uh, in sort of C, it's analogous to, to void-ish. It's not not perfect analogy, uh, but uh, other languages have a unit type, uh, right? And so it just has a single value of, of, of that type. <laughs> Call it splat or, or whatever you want. Um, uh, and then the second is the type former for disjoint union types, or, or called some types. Here we have a tagged union between types A and types B. Um, and it's important that it's, it's a tag uh, here, right? So you can do A plus A, uh, and you can know uh, that the, you have sort of different values for the types of A from the left-hand side, from the, that's distinct from the, the values of type A from the right-hand side. Uh, and then we have product types, which is basically a, a record type, uh, where you have a first component and a second component from, from types A and types B. And then uh, the simplistic expressions themselves, uh, they are all these functions. <coughs> Uh, so an expression T is always a function from some sort of input type to some output type. Uh, and we sort of denote it this way uh, with this notation here to denote that some simplicity expression T has input type A and produces output type B. Uh, the, core, the core of simplicity has, like, has only these nine combinators. Uh, and then here's the typing rules that you have for it. Uh, and very roughly speaking, we have uh, in the top uh, sort of an identity function and, and a functional composition operator uh, uh, for, for composing uh, simplicity programs. And then we have a unit primitive, which is sort of a constant function that returns that unit value. Then we have uh, a bunch of operations associated with the disjoint union type to add the tags and do case analysis on the tags. And then at the bottom, we have the operation sort of related to the product types where we can pair up values and we can access the first and second components of, of inputs uh, that, it, that we have over here. And then we can write out the denotational semantics for, for it. Um, and it looks like this, right? And the, the, the larger point here is that it just fits on a t-shirt over here. Right, I, I mean, we're not at a programming language conference, so we don't have to go into the details of the semantics, right? But it's, it's, it's very simple. Um, and it, it's based on Gensin's sequence calculus, 
um, and instead of the lambda calculus. Uh, but the sequence calculus is well understood. Uh, so uh, with, with only nine combinators, you might be wondering how can we possibly write programs uh, in such a paltry language, right? And uh, well, we just, uh, we sort of start at the bottom or, or maybe even below the bottom, right? Because uh, we can start defining bits using our, our type system, right? So a bit is just the, the disjoint union of the, the unit type with itself, right? So remember we have a tag union. Uh, so we have a tag distinguishing the, the left unit value from the right unit value. So uh, there are two values of this, this disjoint union, one plus one. So I like that equation, two is equal to one plus one, right? So that, that two is the notation for a bit. And once we have a bit, we can start building uh, words, machine words, right? So we can take the product of two bits and we have a, a bit string of, of, of two bits, which we write two squared. And then once we have uh, bits of, of strings of length two, we can build bit strings of length four by pairing those up and getting two to the four. And then we'll get two to the eight, which is an eight-bit word, which is starting to sound a little bit computery. And then we get 16-bit words and 32-bit words and 64-bit words and 128-bit words and 256-bit words. And right now, now at 256-bit words, we can really start doing a real cryptography. So that's nice, right? Um, right, and so what we do is we build a, a a half adder, so you go back to your digital logic course from your undergraduate uh, 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 computer science, and then uh, so we can build a little function that takes two input bits and then produces the sum, and you need two bits in, in the output type to, 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 to hold the value of that, that sum in the worst case, uh, and then you just write this little program like that, right? And once you have your half adder, you can sort of uh, co compose those together to get a full adder, to, to add three bits together, and then once you have your full adder, you can build a ripple carry adder to, to build up your adders for 32-bit words and 256-bit words, and you can build multipliers and stuff like that, and you just sort of like go through your digital log logic course and your programming course and so forth, right, and pretty soon, you know, you build the SHA-256 block compression function, right, so it takes a initial vector of 256 bits and and uh, has a block size of uh, 512 bits and, and compresses that down to a 256-bit word, right? And so I've written this in simplicity. Um, uh, but because we have formal semantics in, in simplicity, we can actually reason about this code, uh, and then we have a proof in the cock proof assistant that this compression function is correct. And so what does that mean, mean by correct? Uh, I've taken a specification from the verified software toolchain folks uh, where they verified an implementation of OpenSSL's uh, SHA-256 uh, compression function, well, the, the SHA-256 implementation from OpenSSL, right? They have an implementation that they prove it correct in, in Coq that it meets their specification. I take their exact specification uh, using the formal semantics of simplicity to prove that my implementation in simplicity meets that same specification. And now, if you put the two formal proofs together, uh, we have a proof that the implementation in simplicity matches the OpenSSL implementation in C, and that'll be important in a moment. Um, when you actually represent uh, in, in sort of in memory simplicity programs, it's important to take advantage of sharing of sub-expressions, right? So uh, this is sort of what the half adder looks like in, inside memory, uh, sort of diagrammatically, and we have a little bit of sharing going on in the leaves, and as you build up half adder, full adders and so forth, you get more and more sharing of sub-expressions um, and this sort of gets, 
you, you, you get a directed acyclic graph, a DAG that represents your expression, and you sort of get typically, um, when you have lots of sharing, you get this sort of exponential decrease in, in the size of the DAG compared to the size of the, uh, the abstract syntax tree. So that's, that keeps things manageable, right? And then, you know, this is SHA-256, looks like that. Uh, the, the big blob in the middle is the giant lookup table that they have for all, all their constants, and all the logic is in the bottom corner, and then there's some composition on top. Um, so how do, how do we use simplicity inside of a, of a blockchain? Um, and so we, we're gonna follow sort of this sort of similar to the pay to script hash in, in Bitcoin. Uh, basically, we're gonna take our DAG of our simplicity program and we're gonna recursively hash the, the values of the program uh, following the a Merkle tree that follows the abstract syntax tree uh, until we get uh, a hash of the root of your simplicity program and that becomes a commitment to your program, right? And so when you spend to, uh, uh, you, you make your output uh, and you want to lock your, your program, you make a commitment to the, to the Merkle root of the DAG of your simplicity program. That means that when you receive coins, you don't have to provide your simplicity program at, 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 at that point in time. You can just make a commitment by spending to the hash of the simplicity program. And then only when you redeem the, the coins, only then you need to Show, show what the actual program is, uh, and then you will check that, that the Merkle root matches. And this is basically the same way that push to script hash works in, in, in Bitcoin, right? Here's the, the simple recursive definition of how to compute a Merkle root, very straightforward. Um, but another feature of simplicity is that uh, we have this special witness combinator um, uh, that provides, basically makes a constant function for some sort of some sort of output value B, right? So for any, any value B, we could create this witness node, this witness, little witness expression, uh, which is a constant function that ignores its argument and just outputs the constant B, right? So, but the purpose of the witness point here is that uh, the witness value B itself is not committed as part of the Merkle root. So when we def compute the, the definition of the commitment Merkle root for, for a witness value, uh, we can see that its definition doesn't include the value B. So when you have these witness nodes, uh, you know, witness leaves in your, your simplicity expression and you compute the Merkle root, uh, you get a commitment to everything except for those witness values B. And then when it comes to redemption time, you provide your simplicity program and you provide the witness values and then the system will recursively check that the Merkle root matches the commitment. Uh, but at that point in time, you're free to set those witness values to whatever value you want. So at that point in time, you'll be providing your digital signatures, you'll be making choices about which branch that you want to, 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 to redeem with. Uh, you know, if you have a multi-sig, which, which, parts, which uh, uh, public keys you're going to actually be using for your redemption. Uh, so it, the system checks that the Merkle root ma matches, and then it evaluates the simplicity program, including these witness values over here, and to make sure that the program returns success. Um, so uh, the important point here is that um, you would think that the simplicity function, which is a function from an input to an output type, that the input type would represent the input to your simplicity program and the output would represent the output uh, of the simplicity program, but that's not true. The inputs to your uh, simplicity program are really provided by these witness values over here, which are, are malleable, right? And that 
input-output uh, definition for simplicity is really used for internal composition of simplicity programs, not for top-level inputs to your programs. Uh, and another thing is that uh, the, during redemption, if you have unused branches because you're not happy, you've made choices where you're not going to, uh, to, to utilize part of your code, um, those uh, unused branches can be pruned at redemption time you just have to provide the Merkle root for those pruned branches and you can still verify that the commitment matches, right? And as long as the execution doesn't encounter any of those branches that you've pruned away, it can still determine that uh, you've returned success over here. Um, so this is great. It decreases the size of your, your program because you don't have to reveal all those branches that you're not actually using. It enhances privacy uh, because uh, uh, you don't have to reveal those branches that you've, you've committed to but not used. Um, and uh, uh, so in this way, simplicity is basically a native masked uh, programming language. And there are other features that uh, are, are part of the design of, of simplicity. We're gonna have a signature aggregation once that's sort of uh, decided upon. Uh, I guess we'll learn more, more about that after the break. Um, uh, covenants and delegation are all sort of on, 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 uh, on the roadmap for support in, in simplicity. I want to talk a little bit about the operational semantics because that's uh, a very important part of the design of simplicity. Um, so the denotational semantics are great for reasoning about programs. Um, we can talk about uh, the correctness of the SHA-256 implementation and so forth. Um, but denotational semantics basically says nothing about the operational costs of executing simplicity. And we need to make sure that our simplicity programs uh, aren't going to themselves cause denial of service attacks against uh, uh, the network. So we need a way of modeling the time and space costs of executing simplicity programs. And in order to model that, um, I've defined this, this abstract machine called the bit machine, uh, and it's designed to evaluate simplicity expressions. Um, it has, it's a state machine that has two stacks, a read frame stack and a write frame stack, um, and there's about 10 or instructions for the bit machine that sort of manipulate the values on, on these two stacks. So it's not like a stack machine that you would see in typical cryptocurrencies, uh, just because I have two stacks. Um, uh, its, it's operation is quite a bit different. Um, uh, but these 10 operations, they can like push frames onto the right frame stack and can copy data from the read frame stack to the right frame stack and, and, and manipulate the stack elements. Uh, you can find more details in, in, in the paper that's linked in the, in the program. Um, but uh, once we have this abstract machine, uh, so the way the evaluation works is that the machine traverses the um, sort of the DAG that represents the simplicity program and it executes these instructions and man manipulates the bit machine. Um, and once we have the bit machine defined, we can start asking questions uh, to determine the cost or the weight of, of simplicity programs. We can look at the size of the program DAG. We can ask how many steps does the bit, bit machine take to execute uh, this program? Uh, and what is the maximum amount of memory uh, that is, is allocated by the, the bit machine at any point in time during evaluation? And uh, now that we can specify, you know, what, this, what, what it means to have, take a certain amount of time or, or use a certain amount of memory, uh, we can program a static analysis of simplicity programs to compute, quickly compute upper bounds on the amount of time or space 
uh, needed to execute simplicity programs. Uh, and, and so this is great. So uh, these, uh, the static analysis runs in time linear with the, with the size of the DAG, so it's very quick. Um, and uh, it gives you upper bounds on the cost or weight of your simplicity program. Uh, and those upper bounds hold for all possible inputs, right? So when you and I are entering into a smart contract, right, uh, we can do this universal static analysis of the simplicity program. We will know the worst case costs for uh, execution uh, uh, of, of that smart contract uh, in, any, in, any, in any context. Um, now, the astute observer may have noticed that this language is entirely impractical to use for, for anything, right? That, that's the price of simplicity, I guess. Um, so uh, we have to address that problem. Uh, and uh, when, when you sort of analyze how the bit machine operates, you see that uh, basically when, so it's doing this tree traversal of the DAG of, of your simplicity expression, and when it encounters sort of an internal node, it sort of processes the sub-expression at that point in time, and it turns out that all that sub-expression can do is read data from a segment in the middle of the read frame, top read frame stack, and write some output to the middle of the, the, the write frame stack. And, and, and you know exactly what portion of the read frame stack that could possibly be read for, and you know exactly the portion of the write frame stack that will be written to. Um, so what you can do is that if you encounter, because we have this Merkle root, every sub-expression has some sort of name, which is basically the hash you know, it's, it's Merkle root, uh, we, would, we recognize a commonly used uh, sub-expression that appears in, uh, you know, we expect to appear in lots of programs. Uh, we can recognize that, and instead of running the simplicity interpreter to do the computation, we can run the C, uh, some, some sort of C code that does the computation instead. And so now, looking back to the SHA-256 implementation of the compression function for SHA-256, we can compute its Merkle root, we can recognize when running the evaluator, aha, I've been, uh, encountered this node. Uh, this node has, uh, this node, the sub-expression's Merkle root matches the Merkle root of the SHA-256 compression function that I know about, right? We have a proof in Coq, essentially, that proves that, that the uh, OpenS, that the implementation of simplicity matches the OpenSSL's C implementation of the SHA-256 compression function. So we can just go ahead and run the C version uh, and just write the output to the, to, the, to the write frame stack of the output of the compression function. Uh, and this, uh, this is basically an optimization of, that the interpreter can do. Um, and so uh, then what we can do is we can create a list of these discounted jets um, and, and, and provide discounts so that you don't pay the full costs uh, associated with those jets. And that incentivizes people to use the jets um, and makes the costs not entirely prohibitive for, for running it. And so in this way, by having a rich set of jets, we can make uh, the simplicity language practical. Now, you might be saying, thinking to yourself, okay, uh, you've just ruined simplicity, right? Because now we have a whole bunch of jets that have, are implementing a bunch of behavior, and your language is not really just those nine combinators that we, we set up to, to start with, right? And that's, that's true. Right, um, but I think uh, we've still gained something by by going through this process over here, right? Because uh, 
By using this JET mechanism, the JET's names themselves by, the, by its Merkle root provide a formal specification of their behavior, right? The JET has to, do, has to implement, the, 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 the C code has to implement exactly the same behavior that the simplicity program would have run uh, if you had run the interpreter itself. And by using the Cockett proof assistant, we can make those guarantees, uh, we can guarantee that sort of behavior, right? So JETs provide formal specification of their behavior just sort of inherently. Uh, JETs themselves can't introduce new effects or new behaviors into the language, right? Because they can only perform what simplicity code could have done uh, anyways. And, in, and another important point is that JETs are transparent when reasoning about their behavior, right? So when it comes to some code that uses a bunch of JETs and you're, in, you're trying to reason about what's going on, you're using the cock proof assistant to prove some, some security property or something like that, right? The, the JETs are transparent, right? You can just replace, you know, the, when you're doing reasoning, replace the JET with the simplicity code that, that specifies the JET's behavior uh, and, 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 and you can continue reasoning, right? So basically you have a single unified language for both specifying the behavior of JETs and for composing JETs together. And I think that's a big advantage. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about formal verification, right? Because I think the ultimate vision here is that we want to have a smart contract language that supports the ability to manage you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of funds, right? That is possibly custom ta tailored for, for whatever purpose that the participants in the smart contract want. Uh, and it might be single purpose in the sense that this smart contract will only ever execute once and then it'll be done. And we want to run it in a public blockchain, which is probably the most adversarial environment to, to run these programs in, right? And in my opinion, formal verification is the only conceivable way of actually achieving the safety that we need in order to manage mil millions of dollars on a one-off piece of code that will only be run once and has to execute in the adversarial environment of a public blockchain, right? And honestly, I'm not certain formal verification is, an, is, is going to be enough, right? But it is, I believe, literally the best that we can do, right? right? So uh, like it's, it's, I think it's the only game in town. Uh, so to aid formal ver verification, the plan going forward is that um, uh, we have the simplicity language specification uh, given in Coq. We're going to come up with a uh, sort of a C implementation for execute. That, that gives an interpreter for evaluating that. And then we're going to use the uh, verified software tool chain to formally verify that the C implementation of the interpreter matches the language semantics you know, on the t-shirt or, or in the cock proof assistant, right? Uh, and this is important, right? Because if your implementation doesn't match the, the specification of the language, well, uh, guess what? Your, your blockchain's real language is the thing that you've implemented in, in C, not, not whatever you've put on your t-shirt, right? So, uh, that's, a, that's going to be an important step to get a formal link between that. Um, and then uh, we're, using, uh, we're using C because uh, the CompCert project, more or less modulo some hand waviness, basically has a specification of the C programming language, right? So that makes it possible to say, you know, the C implementation uh, meets the, uh, the language semantics of, of simplicity. But moreover, right, they have a certified compiler for that C specification that they've given, and then you can produce x86 assembly, and then by combining those proofs together, you'll know that the uh, you know, actual machine code that you've, you've, you've compiled out is in fact going to give you an interpreter for the simplicity language itself, 
And there are actually some projects, you know, that, will, that take that, that end a little bit further to specify the hardware and then uh, get some guarantees about the hardware executing the assembly correctly and so forth, right? And But going the other way, um, this is sort of just the tail end of a larger, you know, formalization effort that, that's necessary, right? So there's probably going to be some sort of front-end language because simplicity is not designed to be written by hand. Uh, so it's going to be the target of some compiler, maybe IV or Sigma state language or some of the other ones that we've seen, seen yesterday, right? Or multiple front-end languages. Uh, and then if those languages have formal specifications, uh, then we can... Uh, then we can create a formal verified compiler to simplicity to show that that transformation is semantics preserving. Uh, but then that's, we have to go further, right, because smart contracts are really composed out of lots of little scripting languages. We can take the Lightning Network as an example, right? You have your breach contracts, your payment channels, and stuff like that. So a smart contract protocol is actually composed of multiple uh, little bits of these little programs that are, are sort of operating in concert together. So we'll need a specification of the pro at the protocol level of, of what's going on, which will produce these front-end languages which get compiled to simplicity and so forth, right? But that's just a protocol specification. We need to, like, uh, our ultimate goal is to guarantee that some sort of properties of this, this, this protocol are achieved, right? So really, we need to formally specify the, the security properties that we're trying to achieve from our smart contracting language. Uh, and then we'll have to prove that the protocol achieves those security properties. And, here you'd use some, something, something like the foundational cryptography framework or, or other similar projects that are, are ongoing in Coq. Uh, that'll connect to your protocol. And the nice thing is that we have all these various projects, you know, Simplicity is just one little node in this graph, right? They're all using the same, same uh, proof assistant, which, which is the Coq proof assistant. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the Coq proof assistant, right? But for the the argument here, the important thing is that they're all in the same system. Uh, and then when you combine all these components that the various people are working on, they're all formally connected together, and we get to the point where, you know, we know that uh, the actual assembly code that's running the nodes on our blockchain are working in concert to achieve the formal security properties of your smart con contracting program protocol, right? Now, so this is the ultimate goal, and you know, we're not maybe going to get there this year or uh, anytime soon, right? But the point is to have a design that supports the ability to achieve this end-to-end uh, -end verification effort. Um, and I think that's an important way, an important uh, way to design things. So to quickly review, uh, what are the solutions provided by Simplicity, right? We avoid denial of service attacks, right? Because we have a simple model for computing uh, resource costs. Um, Right, there's only nine core combinators, and it's not so hard to analyze what's the space-time usage of, of those little bits over there. There's a bit, little bit of a, an issue uh, with jets, but even then, the jets are so constrained because they have to only implement uh, what Simplicity can do. I think they're, it's going to be much more feasible sort of to analyze the computational costs of the individual jets. Right? We can avoid running out of gas right? because we have a very simple static analysis that bounds the resource costs for arbitrary programs. We have a universal... Uh, we have a universal algorithm to, to determine uh, resource costs. Um, we can try to avoid hacks, right? So I can't make it, I can't make people produce bug-free code, right? But I can provide them with tools that will enable them to formally reason about their smart contracts 
uh, and have a hope of, of, of doing verification. Whether people will or not, I don't know, but at least we can provide them the tools. Uh, so th those people who are willing to do, provide the expense, right? So if you're going to have $100 million in a contract, right, maybe it's worth spending $100,000 or, or half a million dollars to do the verification effort, right? If you're running like, you know, a $100 contract, maybe you're just going to wing it, right? Um, but we want, to, we want to enable that $100 million case. Uh, and then we get some privacy benefits and, uh, and, and reduce costs because we uh, have this native mast uh, language. All right, so you can read more about Simplicity. The, the paper's on the archive. It's also linked uh, from, from the program. Uh, and yep, uh, I guess I have some time for questions. Oh, thank you. I like simplicity. Uh, I do have a question. Uh, do you, in your program, do, is there any conditional statement? Is it possible? And also loop? Uh, another question, is, uh, it looks like you're based on DAG as uh, the data structure, as the uh, operation kind of thing. Do you have introduced other type as a data structure? So the, the DAG is not a data structure. It's the format for holding simplicity programs. So it's sort okay. of the, yeah. so it's not something that the program manipulates itself. Okay. Uh, it's just a, um, it's just the yeah, internal the representation cell, of the program. Cell within the DAG is the type. Well, the, the, the program itself is in, in, in an expression form. So right. we have this, uh, for the branching operator is this case operator over here that does case analysis on the tag of a disjoint union type. Uh, and in the case of a bit, uh, uh, the, the contents of the left and right branches of, of a bit are just the unit type, so they contain no information. So all the values contained in the tag, uh, and so the case analysis uh, for the uh, bit type basically is an if statement. And for loops, there are no loops um, in uh, simplicity, right? Uh, but there's like 200, there's 64 rounds inside SHA-256, right? And the reason that this program is so compact, uh, you can't really see it over here, is that those 64 rounds are unfolded, so there's no loop, so we have to unfold it. But then because we have sharing in the DAG, all the body of the loops end up at, uh, being combined together, right? So you, if you were to analyze this graph, you would sort of see uh, uh, sort of a fan in of 64 arrows. I, I found it at one point in time uh, pointing over here, right? So we have no loops, but we have sort of this replacement for loops that, that is very effective. In a conditional statement? Yeah, the, 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 case, the case expression okay. is the uh, conditional uh, statement. Okay. So each cell, uh, I still trying to figure out, each cell in this DAG, in this DAG, does each cell is just a, uh, what kind of type of data in the, each cell? It's the, it's the program, right? So uh, it's the expression. E each, each one and right. its descendants represents a sub-expression of, 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 of a program. Okay. Sounds cool. Can you talk about uh, the reason why you've gone with sequent calculus rather than lambda calculus? Yeah, so of course, the lambda calculus is a natural thing to reach for when aiming for a simple programming language. Uh, the problem I have is with function types. Uh, while in principle, you could still do the static analysis with fu function types, uh, my conjecture is, and if I'm wrong, I'd like to be, be proven wrong, uh, is that when you do a static analysis with, when, when the presence of function types, you'll end up with upper bounds that are so far exceed the actual bounds of, of exceeding the program that 
that there'll just be impractical values, right? So it's no good if your upper bound is computed as two to the, you know, 60, you know, two to the 60 uh, steps for, for execution or something like that, or two to the 60 uh, cells of memory, uh, when in fact you only use a, a tiny amount in practice. Uh, so the purpose of the sequence calculus is to, to avoid function types, and uh, I'm expecting that you can still have function types in your front-end language. Uh, uh, the, the aim here would be to use defunctionalization to turn a higher-order language into a first-order language, and the people I've spoken to about defunctionalization tell me that it works very well, so I'm uh, sort of pinning my hopes on that. Uh, but for the little toy programs I I've used so far, uh, uh, I have not missed, missed the function type, so keeping everything first-order uh, seems to be working okay. Okay, uh, continuing that, uh, for the, for the uh, estimations, uh, uh, are there any bounded estimations for the language that you're using? Yeah, so for, for any simplicity program, there's a universal algorithm that will give you an upper bound on the time and space usage when executed by the abstract fit machine. Uh, How close it to the optimal solution? So for, uh, like for the SHA-256 expression, right, uh, I've run it on several inputs, uh, and they've basically, uh, all, all the inputs take the same amount of memory, and that memory is within one bit of the bound or equal to the bound uh, with a sort of a variant that I have. Okay. Thank you. Well, the, 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 the static analysis produces an upper bound, right? But I'm sure you can, I'm, I have no doubt that you can construct programs that, uh, that force that upper bound to be arbitrarily far away from, from, from it. Uh, I think those, those programs aren't going to be practical, uh, but that, again, is part of the unknowns of, of this project. How are you assigning costs to operations and related, how much, um, how do you decide the discounts for jets? Yeah, so um, I haven't done that part yet. Um, so the idea will be to basically, uh, I think something very simple like just counting the number of of nodes. When you have the C implementation, there's sort of this tight for loop that is running through the expression T to, and doing the updates to the bit machine. Um, and you can sort of just count the number of iterations that you're going to have through that loop. And, I, and even though that some, some, uh, some iterations will be faster than other iterations, depending on the interpreter that they're, they're running, I think they're all pretty similar. Uh, and regarding discounts for jets, uh, that's probably the weakest aspect of this design that we'll have to do some sort of, again, analysis uh, and, and come up with arbitrary discounts. Um, but I think it's okay. I think it'll be okay because, look, we have this space of programs that you can write in Simplicity, which is very large, right? We have the space of programs that people actually want to write for smart contracts and the, space of, and the set of programs that are just infeasible to run on a blockchain. And my hope is that there's a large gap between those two sets and we can draw a bound roughly in between, and we don't have to be exactly precise about our, our, our estimates of, of computational costs, as long as we encompass everything that you could reasonably want to run on a blockchain and exclude everything that will be a denial of service attack. How, how do the constraints expressible in time locks fit into all of this? All right, so I, I didn't uh, discuss, uh, so there are some ex uh, extra primitives beyond uh, what I've stated for here. Uh, so, the, uh, you're going to have some sort of uh, verify signature function, or sorry, sig hash function in Simplicity that produces a digest and provides access to the uh, environment that the uh, program is running in. And for covenants, you'll probably want 
uh, we're going to give you sort of a fine-grained access to the components of the transaction data, so you can pull out the end-lock time and, and so forth. Is there going to be a jet for coins? <laughs> uh, I'm willing to jet anything that, that I can find a, a use case for. I, I, I plan to be very generous with jets. The plan for jets is to like look at the type of programs you want to run, look at the sub-expressions that make up that program. So even just looking at SHA-256, right, we see we want XOR, we want a majority function and, and stuff like that. So we want to just sort of go through and find you know, all the various components and provide jets for, for all of them so that people have this flexibility to build what they want. Right, and, and we want to, it's a little bit tricky, but I think we can design it so that we can soft fork in you know, new jets as, as we proceed. So when we get our post-quantum crypto, we'll be able to add jets that are suitable for that. Hello, my name is Chen Liu. Uh, I'm from Ohio University. Thanks for sharing all these details. I have two questions. One, you talk about these two space. One, uh, a space that people want to write in this type of contract. Second, what do you enable with simplicity? And uh, today you talk about all these nice properties, what you can prove, what you can formally verify, the, the, the operational semantics, the denotational semantics, that's great. But uh, to be able to have all these uh, nice features, um, we simplify things, hence the name simplicity, I'm guessing. Uh, so my question is, are there anything that people will want to use, need to use, that we have to exclude in this language design because of the nice property we want to achieve? So this, this is my first question. The second question is, when can we use it? <laughs> um, so um, to address your first question is that I've, I've made the language the, the language design is, not, is trying not to be, to make any statements about what people want to do with it or what not to do it. So my hope is that basically everything that people want to express can be expressed uh, with simplicity. Um, there are some other features like delegation which actually ex enhance the power of, of, of simplicity uh, that sort of go beyond what I've talked about over here. Um, but I, I don't want to exclude any reasonable, the only thing that I'm, I, I want to exclude is those things that people might want to do, which is just prohibitively expensive uh, to, to run in a blockchain, right? So there, there, there are a lot of things that people talk about smart contracts that I think are entirely infeasible to run on a public blockchain, right? And, uh, and unfortunately, those will be excluded, but they were going to be in, infeasible to run, run anyway. Um, and regarding when we can use it, right? So I'm, I'm working, I'm doing that actual thing where people say that they're going to throw away their first implementation and, and, and redo it. I'm actually doing that. Uh, uh, so when I made this paper, this was basically based on a, a sort of a research prototype and stuff like that, uh, code that you'd be embarrassed to, to share with other people, right? So I'm working on redoing that, uh, and I can't provide any particular timeline. I wouldn't expect any earlier than, than, than the second quarter of this year, uh, but it'll be ready when, when I, I think it's, uh, it's presentable. Cool. Thank you. I have to ask though, uh, it's, it's hopeless to, co to uh, compile solidity contracts to, to simplicity, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's necessarily going to be incomplete because there are no infinite loops in simplicity, right? The, the, the semantics of simplicity is too, too narrow to it. Do you think you can have a, define a subset of solidity that you can compile to? You could, in principle, especially with the delegation feature that I didn't talk about at all over here, uh, you could create a simplicity program, you could take solidity program and produce uh, something that produces a, a sort of a trace of its output, and you could write a simplicity 
program that is able to verify the trace of simplicity program, uh, solidity programs that do something like that. I think it would be totally unreasonable to take this approach, but theoretically <laughs> possible. <laughs> I see. Okay, fantastic. This is really cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right.